Hey everyone and welcome to the latest DF Direct Weeklies, our weekly show where we talk about the news stories of the week, uh, bring you behind the scenes, tell you about what's going on uh, with Digital Foundry staff and projects, and uh, of course, take some Q&A uh, from our lovely Patreon supporters of the Digital Foundry Supporter Programme. And joining me this week, a brand new lineup. <laughs> First of all, we have... Uh, well, I guess the free Will Judd campaign paid <laughs> off because here he is, Will Judd. Hooray! Thanks for having me, guys. Proud to be here. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing what you've got to say about stuff like the Xbox wireless controller, Xbox wireless controller. Xbox wireless controller. And of course, uh, the Radeon 6700 XT, which uh, we both reviewed this week. Mm. Uh, but moving on, we have live, well, live for me, from Berlin, Alex Batalia. <laughs> hey there, Rich. Hey there, Will. Uh, this, I think this is Will's like third or fourth on-screen appearance, if I recall. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. So this is a rare moment. I'm going to savor it. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. Well, look. Let's just jump straight into the news. Um, FPS Boost. We had mm -hmm. um, basically a huge range of Bethesda titles. We knew about this last week, but it was uh, under embargo, so we couldn't really talk about it. Uh, we had Prey and uh, Dishonored Definitive Edition. Yeah. Uh, Dishonored Definitive Edition. Well, the definitive <laughs> bit would be in quotes, because I'm not sure it is definitive. I don't know about Regardless, that. Regardless, <clears throat> uh, we also had um, the Bethesda Game Studio titles, Skyrim, Fallout 4, Fallout 76. Those are on FPS Boost 2. Um, quite a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Uh, Alex, why don't you start? Yeah, I guess we should start where I started with John, essentially looking at that um, Prey and Dishonored quote-unquote definitive edition. And for that title, uh, the FPS boosting, especially in Prey, was more or less flawless and really kind of brought that experience, especially on Xbox Series X, where it had that Xbox One X patch coming out uh, at one point, bumping the resolution up to 1440p and adding in things like screen space reflections. It essentially makes the game much more like its PC counterpart, which was at the time, the way to play the game. Uh, on top of this, of course, you had also the other backwards compatibility uh, additions, which round out the entire package, especially for Prey here, uh, reducing that loading time to levels that are bearable. I, I, I'm just like, I just went back into Avengers this week for my, for my work and just looking at these last gen load times, I am gonna, I just have no idea how people lived up with this. And <laughs> uh, maybe it was something looking back at the gen that should have been covered a little bit more as like a, I can't believe it kind of thing. Um, but uh, it's just so much better now as a result of that. Uh, the one thing I'm a little confused by, um, and I guess this, this goes into talking about Fallout 4 a little bit too, uh, uh, is that you have a title like Dishonored here in its definitive edition being bumped up to 60 FPS and, and a game that, you know, on almost any PC CPU out there and almost any PC GPU out there runs, you know, way above 60 FPS. Uh, yet yet mm. there are little bits, uh, you know, little, little bits of trouble spots in there where it dips down below for reasons unknown on uh, Xbox Series X and Xbox Series S in its uh, 60 FPS boost mode, which... I guess uh, this is a PC-like experience that you're getting with these upgrades, but it does tell you that there's something still in the backwards compatibility chain from these original titles themselves that is preventing at times 
uh, games from being a completely flawless 60 FPS when they have an every other right, you know, based upon hardware to be there. Um, and I think that that fall goes yeah. to Fallout 4, which Tom is covering right now. Yeah, um, it is fundamentally a system level hack, really. Mm. Uh, the, the FPS boost. So it doesn't surprise me that there are going to be some minor issues that crop up. Um, I think the more interesting topic is Fallout 4 because at the moment it's a 1080p 60 experience on Series X and S. Mm. Um, and yeah, people kind of assumed that it was a bug, but I checked in with Microsoft and it's basically, look, we wanted to guarantee 60 FPS. So we locked it to 1080p on both systems. And um that is surprising. It almost suggests that, you know, um, Microsoft know that Series X can't always double Xbox One X performance, which we have seen kind of borne out in our own back compat tests. Mm. But it does seem like a rather extreme solution. I guess you can still play the game at 4K30 um, by turning FPS boost off. And there is also um, a user mod that will unlock the frame rate so you can retain 4K. I mean, it does seem rather odd. I mean, obviously, Microsoft would have done a lot more testing on the 60 FPS side of things. And we don't know exactly what the user mod is doing beyond unlocking the frame rate. I think it is just unlocking the frame rate. But there's some odd stuff going on with volumetrics there. Mm. Um, So I don't really understand uh, what's going on there. It affects both Fallout 4 and Fallout 76. But I guess we just need to take it at face value that Microsoft think that you know, it's either 4K30 uh, or 1080p60 on the X, and you can choose. And there is this kind of back door towards 4K60 uh, if you want to use the existing mod there. We covered that, of course, in the past. Also, um, we, what is 4K60 is Skyrim, which um, I actually took a quick look at, and it runs just like the user mod, which is effectively unlocks the frame rate. Oh, awesome. Again, um, Series X still has problems with uh, volumetrics, but it's by and large pretty much locked to 60 FPS. It's game changing. It looks great. So, yeah, it's kind of um, an unexpected departure from the norm straight out the bat there on the Fallout. I didn't expect them to uh, drop down to 1080p on Series X. It's uh, kind of bizarre, but um, if that's how Microsoft wants to play it, I mean, it has been confirmed now that this is a conscious decision. There is a hack to work your way around it by launching the game without FPS boost, dropping back, turning it on, and then using quick resume to get back into the game. So, But that actually seems to be slower than the mod uh, for, for Fallout 4, which is oh. kind of a bit strange. Yeah. Fallout 76, there's no mods because... Uh, that's just not doable, really, on, on the Xbox. So that is going to be either 1080p60 or 4K30. So, yeah, kind of curious to see the way that one sort of uh, played out. Uh, any more comments about FPS Boost? Any titles that you'd like to see? Um, I did mention in the video with John, but I would like to see Arkham Knight just for the, the big laugh when it does reach a flat 60 on Xbox, but it's still completely broken on PC. <laughs> yeah, Can you I, kind of, I kind of want to see that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, um, yeah, that's funny. I have actually had conversations with a mysterious insider who worked on the BC port of um, Arkham Knight. And uh, the fundamental issue is the lack of unified memory on the PC side. The game was built for it on the console side. Right, right. And um, I do understand that Rocksteady actually took the PC version back 
from <laughs> I think it was Iron Galaxy. Oh, no. they, they actually did the the, the further optimizations. Mm. It's in a fairly good state now, but only because you've basically got years worth of extra horsepower for the CPU side and the GPU side. And it kind of works now in combination with Rocksteady's optimizations. But yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. But um, yeah, FPS Boost going to be really interested to see what other titles they come up with. And um, yeah, just sort of still sort of uh, blindsided a bit by the resolution drop on uh, Fallout. I didn't really see that coming. But let's move on. Um, another quick topic we can talk about. Sony has been talking about the next generation VR for PlayStation 5, the new PSVR. Mm. We had the announcement last week or the week before. Uh, we know it's going to be a uh, headset with a single wire. I'm presuming it's going to be USB-C or plug in at the front. Mm-hmm. This week we saw the touch controllers. Who wants to talk about that? Uh, I guess I can uh, kind of chime in here a bit. I think the one of the weakest spots of the original PlayStation VR was how you control the games. I mean, that doesn't mean there weren't great experiences uh, done through PlayStation VR with just the base controllers. I actually think that's where it had its like great strength was like some of the games that just worked with the base controller. But the, the move controllers are not exactly, uh, for a variety of reasons, not exactly pretty great uh, for VR experiences like you would see uh, on PC. So this looks like a step in the PC direction, very much so in line what you might see with Oculus Touch, it's, you know, except for this has like the force feedback functions that you see as well on the um, normal PlayStation 5 controller. So I think this is just a great standardization and it'll mean better ports from the, the PC VR space in the end. I'm, I'm pretty happy about it. Yeah, any thoughts, Will? Uh, I, I guess the one thing that comes to mind is that, um, you know, this obviously looks a lot uh, closer to other kind of PC uh, VR controllers that we've seen in, in, the, in the past. And Kind of now with the PS5, all the previous PS VR games always kind of looked a little bit, you know, too grainy, not quite high frame rate, high resolution mm-hmm. enough, um, because they're kind of being held back by the hardware. And now that the PS5 is here, then you know, there's so much more potential to really kind of push that and to make much more immersive experiences. It used to be that you know, if you got a PC version and a PS VR version, often the PS VR version would be you know relatively low res and it would be noticeable. But now, you know, there's, um, yeah, the, the, there's a lot of potential, I think, for, for getting out games that, you know, look just as good on, on PS5 as they do on PC, which would be really cool. Yeah, I think uh, from my perspective, the familiarity of the controller is actually quite a good thing because mm. um, they're not trying to reinvent the wheel. There will be a commonality with existing uh, PC interfaces, which should make ports easier. And uh, I guess from my perspective, I just want to know more about the actual makeup of the um, of the uh, headset itself, the resolution of the screen, yeah. refresh rates that they're targeting there. PlayStation 5 is such a potent machine for this, and uh, I'm really interested in seeing uh, mm-hmm. just how far they're willing to push it. And I'm guessing it would have to be 120 hertz uh, to maintain backwards compatibility. I would like to see backwards compatibility with uh, PSVR 1. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, Exciting just to see that the VR community is still being serviced in the console space because, you know, I don't think that Sony enjoyed, uh, you know, a game-changing level of Mm -mm. revenue from embracing VR. It always seemed like a sort of experimental thing. 
mm. but they're keeping the experiment going. They're keeping the door open. And I think that's 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 really important. So yeah, <laughs> good luck to PSVR two. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Okay, well, let's move on to our next topic. Um, well, this is something that you've been quite interested in for quite some time, Alex. And I think I can probably give you a bit more behind the scenes uh, information on it. And um, it was a video that Hardware Unbox did, which was about uh, system overhead, driver overhead um, on uh, APIs, low-level APIs, DX12 Vulkan. And the findings were, well, I think the, the, the headline takeaway was something crazy like... Um, uh, NVIDIA has got a driver overhead problem, uh, which I don't think has been borne out by some of the other testing that's been done since. But I do think that the point is that AMD has a lower driver overhead than NVIDIA. Mm. I think it's been measured uh, quite consistently. The question is to whether, to what extent it has relevance to the mainstream PC hardwares of today. What do you reckon, Alex? Okay, so I, I think there's... Um... Just to talk about it first, I think on like a more theoretical, philosophical level, uh, what you're seeing uh, in you know the transition to DX12 and Vulkan is a lot of the driver responsibilities of memory allocation and threading being handed over to the game engine programmers. Um, so that means invariably that there's going to be a varied variability in the results we see uh, borne out in testing across vendors and across games. And I think. Uh, going beyond Hardware Unboxed's initial reporting on this, which is great that they got this information out, I actually really liked PC Games Hardware's uh, follow-up article with a little bit, I would say, more rigorous, in-depth uh, kind of swath of titles that they covered, large base, as well as different thread and core configurations, uh, as well as just a whole bunch of different cards, too. They did a lot of groundwork, so props to them for doing this article here. And um, kind of just shows that in the end, yes, indeed, there is a, um, I would say, a heavier CPU cost to the low level, as in Vulkan and DX12 uh, driver in NVIDIA on average across multiple games. Uh, it's not as dramatic, though, as if when you just look at one or two or three games, because there's essentially just a wealth of different DX12 titles and implementations. And a part of DX12 is that the way you address the hardware, there could be different hardware paths for NVIDIA and AMD, which can lead to different CPU consequences as well, based upon how you program your game. And given the kind of low-level nature of consoles, it is unsurprising to a certain level degree that there could be more optimizations out there targeting AMD hardware than right. there might be NVIDIA for such low-end things. But <laughs> th throwing that out the way, the little philosophical part at the beginning, um, I do think in terms of how much this affects the average user currently um, and what can NVIDIA do about it. I think the average user, um, these DX12 or Vulkan games uh, usually um, are not the big kind of middle of the range games other than I would say Call of Duty uh, Modern Warfare in terms of like the esports crowd. So a lot of the esports uh, stuff is still running on DX12, uh, I mean, sorry, DX11. Um, so you're not going to be seeing this necessarily anyway. But for those big end titles that you want to push 60 FPS on on a mid-range PC uh, while maintaining console settings, and I'm going to call mid-range PC here, something like a Ryzen 5 2600, 3600. I, don't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't consider the older line really relevant anymore. Uh, but around there, this, this could come up depending upon the game. It could actually lead to a scenario where 
there could, it could be favorable for a 60 FPS experience to actually be running an AMD machine uh, by the ever slightest amount, but it could still be a relevant uh, thing. Uh, whether or not NVIDIA can really do anything about this, um, the whole point of DX12 and Vulkan is to take away a lot of NVIDIA's influence on the kind of backend stuff that the driver's doing. They have a lot less influence than they did in DX11 and DX9 titles. Um, so I don't actually know what they can really do other than proliferate best practices for NVIDIA hardware in the same way that AMD's been able to do it mm. quite well for DX12. So really yeah, this is about. quite an interesting turnabout because for some time now, um, I've been talking about the DX11 driver overhead, mm -hmm. which on AMD is not great if you're having a, uh, I guess, an entry-level CPU. So the first time I noticed it was way back, mm -hmm. I think, 2015, 2016, where I noticed that if you ran a Core i3 processor with a Radeon um, graphics card in Call of Duty, I think it was Advanced Warfare at the time, any time there was yeah, a, a lot been, of draw yeah. calls okay. happening, performance would tank on an i3 processor and it would be fine on an i7 processor. So that's on the AMD side. Meanwhile, there would still be an impact to performance on the NVIDIA side using the i3, but it was still by and large consistent. So we actually have had a video up on the channel for several years now where you know a 750 Ti is uh, outperforming. I think it was uh, either, I think it may be a, uh, oh God, maybe a 280X or something, yeah, or something like remember. that. It will be yeah, on, the, like on the channel. Mm. Regardless, mm. this much more powerful GPU from AMD was being throttled by its DX11 driver. And uh, that wasn't great because at the time, it was a perfectly valid use case scenario to have a dual core processor and it's an entry level processor and AMD provided much better value in the kind of low to mid-end GPU space. So that combination mm -hmm. of components was a thing, and it actually worked out that, you know, you'd be better off spending a bit more on an NVIDIA card because the DX11 driver was multi-threaded for starters, and that would uh, give you better performance than a better GPU, which was, which was quite remarkable. And... There was a point where um, I did raise this with the uh, Radeon um, team, and uh, we actually sat down in London and had a discussion about it. Uh, one of their engineers was actually on holiday in London at the time and came and joined the <laughs> discussion. And um, essentially, you know, it was, well, we've got very limited resources. We can't really do much with the DX11 driver, but we're putting all of our resources into the new low-level APIs like um, uh, DX12 and Vulkan. And, you know, years on, we are actually now seeing that really pay off seemingly with um, uh, far less of an impact uh, at the driver level. And um, the table's almost turning where it does seem to be more of a, an issue on the NVIDIA side. I think the impact of it is lessened because, you know, back in the day, a dual core CPU was, you know, a perfectly viable gaming chip. These days, you know, it's quad core minimum and, you know, you're better off with six cores really and you can get that at an achievable price point. Mm -hmm. So it is much le less of an issue. And I'm curious to see to what extent it, I don't think it is a massive issue at, um, at the moment, but it is going to be an issue possibly for high frame rate experiences um, in the esports arena. Now, at the moment, I think, Will, you can chime in on this. Isn't it the case that most esports titles are DX11? 
Yeah, most of them do tend to be um, geared towards speed rather than uh, any taking advantage of any kind of DX12 features. So yeah, DX9 is uh, used for stuff like <laughs> Counter-Strike, and DX11 is used for you know Valorant and things like that, from what I understand. Right. So. So it's just Warzone, really, that's the, the big esports title that uses DX12? Yeah, I, yeah, I'd say that's probably about accurate, yeah. Can't think of too mm. many others that, you know, actually need the, the graphics horsepower to do something interesting on the single-player side of things, and then, therefore, that also influences the, the choice for multiplayer. I guess you also have um, Fortnite, which is a DX12 client, as far as I know. Uh, oh, as yeah, well sure. too. Yeah, but um, I don't know the esports crowd. I honestly don't know the esports crowd for that. Uh, I guess another game that has an esports component uh, that does have a low-level API that I did not see any great testing for. To my knowledge, was Rainbow Six Siege. I think sure, that's yeah, as, right. as a vaulting client these days, if I recall. Uh, mm. uh, I think the main issue, what yeah. I found, was that um, back in the day with the DX11 side, there were still issues. Um, for example, Crisis 3 really doesn't like AMD DX11 driver. Mm. Uh, mm. even if you've got an i7, you still see these really bad frame time spikes that you just don't get with NVIDIA. But I just think by and large, over time, we are now moving over to these new APIs. And I think uh, AMD's kind of long-term gamble on investing there will kind of pay off. But I think you're also right, Alex, in that part of the uh, sort of reason in moving over to DX12 and Vulkan is that it puts far more of the onus on the developer mm rather than on the driver layer. Uh, so they've got to kind of optimize for it as well. Mm. And they've kind of got to take on most of the technical burden there, which would previously be handled by the DX11 driver. I don't know. I do think um, uh, it could well be worth looking into uh, with quad-core processors, which I think is what the PC gaming hardware guys did, Alex. Yeah, they did. They have a whole bunch of, yeah, they did the Core i3 essentially 3100, I believe it was. Oh no, it was the Ryzen 3. It was the Ryzen. The Ryzen 3, I'm yeah. always messing these up these days. Uh, it was the <laughs> Ryzen 3. Um, and that, once again, through through all the their testing, shot, so showed some bigger differences, also some smaller differences. I think they measured in comparison to hardware unbox, I think they just did a different run, but their Horizon Zero Dawn test did not uh, throw up the same kind of differential numbers as we saw with hardware unbox. Same with like Cyberpunk. Um, so. Once again, content also really is a big difference when you do benching. It's really hard to know unless you like, I'm really, you know, not to toot our own horn, but I do like that we show what we're benching uh, on screen. I always think that is a nice benefit because you can't always tell yeah. what's going on there. Like, what is the bench sequence exactly? Is it actually gameplay? Is it a cutscene? Yeah, that is yeah. important. Yeah. I think the other thing which you were well, talking about that specifically, if we go back to that advanced warfare thing I did on driver overhead way back in the day, you can actually see the AMD driver crashing as soon as there's tons mm -hmm. of trees on screen <laughs> where, the, where the draw call overhead increases significantly and uh, just bad things happen. Now, we're talking about uh, advanced warfare there. When I reviewed the Pentium G3258, I saw exactly the same thing yeah. with infinite warfare. And uh, kind of curious to see how whether that's still the case as we've moved on, because, you know, Call of Duty has moved on now to more modern APIs. So I would be kind of curious to go back and revisit that. But I suspect that if we're on DX12, absolutely fine. So I think this is something we need to keep in the back pocket and like maybe that. revisit at some point. Um, but for now, let's move on. And we're <laughs> going to talk about uh, something. This has actually proven to be quite 
a bit more contentious than I thought it would be. Uh, Radeon RX 6700 reviewed this week. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of looking at all... I mean, Will, you did the vast majority of the benchmarking for this before I received the card. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of suspected that there might be some different results uh, across the, the the spectrum of testing that's going to go on out there. Mm. I was kind of surprised at how negative mm-hmm. the overall response to the card was. What, what do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky to say, isn't it? Because normally when you benchmark a card, you kind of get some idea of consistent performance. You know, it's generally between, you know, maybe one or two other graphics cards that you've previously tested. And then you can kind of say, all right, well, it's, you know, it's somewhere in the middle of these two. And then you can get an idea. But for here, it was really quite variable. You know, there are some games that we tested where it was performing below the level of a 3060 Ti, which is a significantly cheaper card. Yeah, no, and yeah. <laughs> always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the magical fantasy land where, you know, you can actually buy a graphics card for any kind of re- reasonable price. Um, and then in other games, you know, it, this was kind of pitched as a 67, or sorry, it was pitched, pitched as an RTX 3070 alternative, right, for slightly less money. And in some games, yeah. it is faster than the RTX 3070. So it's yeah. it's tricky to kind of categorize because, you know, if you have a, a subset of games that you actually play that turn out to work really well on Radeon hardware, then you're going to really love this graphics card because, you know, for the money, if you can get it, then it's going to be really good. But, you know, another person with a different set of games could bring this graphics card home and say, hey, why why the heck is this performing so badly? You know, and I think we've kind of seen yeah. that played out in the, um, you know, in the tech press as well. Because, you know, everyone has a different selection of, of games that they like to choose to, to benchmark. And depending on, you know, your choices there and how, especially how wide of a net you kind of cast in terms of choosing different APIs and things like that, um, you could end up with quite significantly different results. Um, yeah. I think as well that, you know, just there's a lot of pent up frustration from, you know, gamers and tech press alike that you know we're talking about these cards and you can't actually go out and buy one it seems you know um yeah definitely amd kind of took the step of saying okay well we're going to make our reference card available on the launch day and also all the custom cards available and it doesn't seem like that's made any kind of difference whatsoever um previously we had nvidia talking about the rtx 3060 it won't be available for miners because it's mining uh, ethereum rate has been halved so they won't be interested in it but you know, equally, that didn't really do anything to solve availability, as far as we can see. So yeah, it's mm. a lot of frustration all around. I think. Yeah, I mean, here's the issue that I have with the 6700 XT. I've been having a, a lot of thoughts about it because, you know, you can have one game where it's faster than the 3070. So you know, this notional four hundred and eighty dollar uh, price point GPU mm-hmm. outperforms the 2080 Ti effectively. Sure. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, this is textbook good value but then the 3060 ti can outperform the 6700 xt in some titles yep and that's notionally a 400 dollars card i can't help but think <laughs> that you know and this did happen quite a lot in our particular test run uh, our, our particular uh, range of benchmarks so fundamentally i do think that it is notionally overpriced for what it delivers but at mm. the same time it's perfectly adjusted in mm-hmm. terms of price point versus the RX 6800 yeah which we, which was lauded as being you know 
better than 3070. It's it's really weird. Yeah. And the problem is the cheaper you go, the less value that you get gen on gen. <sighs> mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of being borne out here. I just think that I'm just not seeing from AMD the same kind of uh, disruption. I mean, I've said it before, the same kind of disruption and aggression that we saw with Ryzen, where we saw, you know, more features if the if the performance wasn't up to scratch versus N, uh, versus intel it was a lot cheaper mm-hmm. then you factor in all of the stuff like hey you can overclock this chip you can't on the nvidia side you can use faster ram you sorry the intel side uh, you could use faster ram you can't on the intel side all of this created a perfect storm where even if the part was less capable than an intel equivalent in gaming mm-hmm you'd still really seriously consider it because of the value you were getting. But I'm not seeing Mm -hmm. that on Radeon, and I'm kind of curious as to why. Um, I don't know. Alex, what do you think about all of this? Because you're kind of like an outside observer on this. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm less into hardware, and I kind of follow software a bit more. That's my own thing. But uh, as a part of this, I always... uh, This kind of perfect storm disruption for me would come... uh, Price would be a part of it, like you're mentioning, uh, as part of the Ryzen deal, which I always can't forgive Intel for the PCIe lanes thing. <laughs> yes. I have no idea what the heck that's about. That always annoyed the hell out of me. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I think they, uh, on the Radeon side, as part to like sweeten the deal, make that perfect storm, would be a software uh, set up, uh, this may lead into our next uh, kind of topic, that is comparable or competitive to the NVIDIA side. For the longest time for me, uh, before there was any ray tracing and any of that things, I was really big into the NVIDIA legacy driver support uh, for older OpenGL titles, SGSSAA support. Uh, it's just like the, the PC catalog went back further back on NVIDIA with less problems. Mm. Uh, something we didn't see on AMD or ATI for a long time before that. Um, but nowadays it's things like DLSS, it is, uh, you know, competitive ray tracing performance so that you have an option to turn that on in a game without, you know, halving your frame rate uh, to the same degree as it might be on Radeon. Mm. I think since they don't have this uh, competitive software side as much as NVIDIA has, their, their deal at their price point doesn't look as sweet when you could maybe go you could trade off on the NVIDIA side for a little less rasterization performance, but at the same time have the assurance that you'll get a DLSS title or you'll have ray tracing performance that doesn't make you automatically turn it off and things like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think that I think that's a that's part of it uh, that yeah. makes me... I think something else to, to bear in mind, which I think is really important, is there have been many instances in the past where AMD have actually had a significantly stronger part than NVIDIA. Um, we can talk about uh, 580 versus 1060, where it's kind of like for like, but there was a whole sort of, you know, a golden period where you could get a 580 much, much cheaper than a 1060. Yep. Uh, so it would be, uh, you know, the preferable part. Then there was, I think it was the GTX 960 versus the RX 380. 380 was just a faster card across the board, but the 960 was the one that was at the top of the Steam hardware survey. And I think the reason why is... When you reach a certain level in the market, brand is hugely important. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, there needs to be quite a lot of work done on the brand. And it starts by 
basically following the Ryzen textbook. I just, you know, I just, again, I'm kind of curious as to why that isn't happening. I think the 6700 XT to really have made an impact should have been, again, a notional 399 yeah. because then comparisons against the 3060 Ti don't matter. And then anything else that you have where you're faster than 3070, where you're faster than 2080 Ti, suddenly the story transforms into a massive value yeah. win. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what I'm thinking about that. But at the same time, I still think there are plenty of good arguments for saying that the, the um, 6700 XT is perfectly fine where it is. But it's, I don't know, it looks like our um, uh, our colleagues <laughs> elsewhere in the, in the tech press are kind of a bit more harsh on it. But, you know, that's the way it goes, really. Mm. Um, okay, we're going to move on to a topic that's kind of related to that, because um, we've been talking in the past about uh well it's got a name now i'm just looking at the sheet here amd fidelity fx super resolution or fsr mm. uh, there was an interview with uh, amd scott herkelman about it um obviously with the announcement of the 6700 xt i think we talked about this in a previous weekly direct yeah we sure. were kind of hoping to see something more from amd with their uh, dlss alternative this interview with Scott Herkelman says that it's coming this year, but at the same time, it sounds to me like it's still in a really early experimental phase. What do you reckon about that, Alex? Uh, it, I guess it surprised me a little bit that it is so experimental, given the years of kind of ground research that has been done about uh, upscaling at this point in time. Um, I don't know that we've had uh, TAA upsampling since... 2017, 2016, maybe. Uh, it would be with the uh, PS4 Pro. Yeah, right? it's, I mean, um, when I was at the PS4 Pro launch, I saw For Honor running on the Pro, which used Ubisoft's uh, TAA upsampling, which, you know, on that title looks almost as yeah. good as native 4K. This is like 2016. So yeah, it's it's a mature technology now. I think we can say for sure, and that's. Um... And based upon the, the interview, there was a second question there about, uh, I believe, about what the nature of it what might be, uh, whether they want to use something like machine learning uh, to accelerate it, parts of that pipeline, because uh, I presume it's going to, just the way the research has gone, I'm pretty sure it's going to go in a very similar route to TAA upsampling, maybe with machine learning. But as part of the answer to that, it sounds like it's still very much so up in the air, uh, as in the nature of how it will function. Yeah. I just I mean the yeah. quote the quote is you don't need machine learning to do it I mean that is absolutely correct it's been done extremely well on PS4 Pro uh, you don't need machine learning to do it you can do this many different ways and we are evaluating many different ways which on the one hand is good um, <laughs> on the other hand kind of says to me that you know what what have they actually got at the moment you know it doesn't sound like much of any significance uh, or maybe it's one of these uh, uh, sort of, what was it, G-baiting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Um, which, you know, is, is just crazy. Um, but basically, I think the fundamental principles there are good in, in that it will run on all GPUs, which is, um, I think NVIDIA really do need to consider a direct ML equivalent to DLSS. I don't think it will harm them. Um, but again, they're saying that um, you don't need machine learning to do it. And again, if you've got a Radeon 5700 or a 5700 XT and you 
which doesn't have any kind of machine learning acceleration and this feature comes out and you can't run it i guess that would be a bit problematic yeah um i don't know though um i just think at this point in time it really is sounding like uh a variation of what's already been seen in the console space uh and indeed on the pc space with unreal engine 4 temporal upsampling it can produce excellent results i think we're all pretty clear on that but at the same time isn't really comparable to DLSS. Um, what do you reckon, Alex? Yeah, I just I think here, um, for, uh, looking at games running on Unreal Engine 4, as well as uh, Ubisoft titles, which have a variant of this, like the, um, the Division That's 2, excellent. for example, has, uh, has an example of it, which is really excellent. Um, I've noticed in that one that the kind of Right when you get around 70% of the axis resolution using mm. this, that's when you start noticing it uh, as it being less than native uh, resolution. And I'm talking about for 4K here, by the way, not for 1440p or 1080p, which is a different story altogether because uh, it becomes less and less uh, good at reconstructing uh, the lower your resolution is, much like DLSS. Um, at the same time, with DLSS, uh, you can do the 1080p internal resolution scaling option in performance mode, and honestly, it's going to probably end up looking better than the like 1440p or hot, slightly higher equivalent of a TAA upsample, based upon what I've seen always. So, as they say that you don't need uh, machine learning to do it at the moment, the like the really big performance and visual win comes from the machine learning reconstruction that we've seen with the LSS. So. Maybe they, they'll find another way. Um, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because on the one hand, AMD will have access to end results from some of the best developers in the business who have produced astonishingly good temporal upsampling. So, you know, they can take that mm -hmm. work and build on it. But at the same time, even though we've seen some of the work from some of the best developers in the business it still isn't really comparable to dlss uh, i've got a couple of questions here from our patreon supporters uh cameron o'neill what should expectations be for amd's fidelity fidelity effects uh what if any features or benefits will it add to consoles i think the console side of things i mean if it turns out to be a better technology than what people already have it will see adoption mm -hmm. but equally developers may wish to stick to their own um, solutions. I think we've talked about what the realistic expectations should be. But again, you know, mm -hmm. until we actually see something, we can't really be drawn on final conclusions. Another interesting question here from Max Vo <laughs> Max Vandermolen. Sorry about that. I love that. <laughs> when AMD's or, or Microsoft's eventual DLSS equivalent comes out, do you think Microsoft might be able to implement it in a similar manner as FPS Boost or Auto HDR without the need no. to modify the actual game code. Well, I've got some thoughts on that, but Alex? I'm just going to say probably not, yep. just because these kind of things require pretty deep engine-specific changes uh, and, how do you call them, customizations. Uh, so I don't think that's a realistic thing. It's not like a driver control panel option. Yeah. It's a little too intense. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I've actually been doing quite a lot of AI upscaling for a project we're going to be rolling out in the next couple of weeks. And this is using um, Topaz Labs Video Enhance, which can mm -hmm. take a 1080p image and upscale it to 4K. 
And that's pretty much the best solution there is in the business right now. It takes half a second on an RTX 3090 to, to, to generate an upscale <laughs> frame. So not, not frames per second, seconds per frame. Yeah. For that one. And um, it doesn't look as good as DLSS. <laughs> and that is an AI upscale solution. It also produces, well, as, as we shall see when the content mm-hmm. rolls out, um, it doesn't really solve AA issues as well as I kind of hoped it would. In surface yeah. detail, I think looks pretty good, but um, aliasing artifacts, you kind of need that temporal component to get stability there. And yeah. that means plumbing it in at the, at the software level, not at the system level. Mm. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on. Um, I think we'll talk about the Xbox wireless headset next, Will, because you've been looking at that, and it's pretty awesome, right? Yeah, it's actually really, really good. So we've seen quite a few different headsets um, that have come out since the release of the Series X, and one of them has been um, the uh, Xbox wireless headset. And it's the first, I guess, good uh, first-party headset that I've had the chance to test for, for a Series X. And it does quite a lot at a very attractive price point. Um, I think kind of the, the big standout feature for me is the fact that it, it actually allows you to connect uh, via Bluetooth to your phone or to your laptop or whatever and mm. connect to the Xbox wirelessly at the same time. Ooh. And that's okay. really convenient because, you know, you might be able to receive a call while you're playing, you know, playing your Xbox, or you could be on Discord with your mates when you're playing, say, Warzone or something else that's kind of cross-platform, where you might not be able to conveniently uh, chat to, to people playing on PC or, or on PS5 or something like that. And yeah, it's it's really rare to see that feature on a, uh, a headset that is this cheap. Uh, this one is... I believe I pre-ordered it for eighty-five pounds. I think it's ninety pounds normally, mm. and it's a hundred dollars in the U.S. And kind of competing headsets that have a similar feature and are also good headsets are around one hundred and fifty pounds, one hundred and sixty, one hundred and seventy dollars, something like that. Mm. So to yeah. bring that feature down is actually really, really nice. And what's the sound quality like? Uh, it is. I would say it is not as neutral as I was hoping. It is quite bass heavy. I think that kind of works for a lot of games where kind of the emphasis is on that kind of bombastic, you're really in the moment kind of feeling. Um, But the good thing about it is that if you don't like that particular sound profile, um, you can actually go into the Xbox accessories app on the Series X or Series S and change that to be a more neutral profile there's even the option to add more bass if you if you wanted that. There's like a special <laughs> bass boost if you just want your head to vibrate continuously for you know two hours. Um, but yeah, so so the adjustability is 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 good in that sense. The sound quality is you know it's not going to beat out a kind of music oriented critical listening kind of headset. But for a gaming headset, it's really strong at this price, I would say. And um, nice. I guess another thing that sticks out is the usability of it. Because often when you have a lot of features on a gaming headset, they'll kind of all manifest as separate buttons. And so you'll end up with one ear cup that just has, you know, maybe three or four different dials and buttons and switches that you have to kind of manipulate. And, you know, if you're doing that when you're first setting up the headset, then that's fair enough. You can kind of get get to grips with it. But when you need to make changes when you're actually playing a game, it's really awkward because you kind of have to reach back there and think, oh, wait, what is this one? Is this a volume? 
Or is this the mic? Am I adjusting the side tone? Am I changing the surround sound setting? And on the uh, Xbox wireless headset, this is all kind of accomplished by these really giant, um, basically the, the entire outer side of the uh, ear cup is a big dial that you can just reach up and rotate. And it has, uh, instead of being kind of free spinning, it has a definite start and end point. So you can tell even without the Xbox being on that, okay, I'm at max volume or I'm at minimum volume or somewhere in the middle. And then the other side you have, um, you have a uh, mix option. So if you have those two audio sources of, you know, um, chat and uh, the game sound, you can make that quieter or louder. So if, you know, you're trying to play a, a very critical moment in Warzone, say, then you can, you know, shut up your friends for a second. And then after you win, you know, you can turn them up and, and turn down the game sound. So, you know, in terms of, of the features, it's it's really, really solid for the, for the money. Good stuff. And um, 3D audio is kind of a big deal for uh, the console makers this gen. Yeah, Had absolutely. Had a chance to sample that? Yeah, so I loaded up. Um, once you uh, install the headset, you kind of have the option to use it in stereo, or you can use it um, with uh, Windows Sonic, which is kind of the free surround sound upmixing kind of solution. Um, but you also get a six-month trial for Dolby Atmos. So I tried that out in Gears 5, and that was really, really cool. I think it doesn't really help in terms of um, a competitive setting. I think it's still easier, at least for me personally, to, to find out where people are standing and where footsteps are coming from um, just using normal stereo. But if you want to kind of be really immersed in a game, and really feel like you're there and, and all that kind of stuff, then, you know, the, the sensation of having sounds coming from all around you is, is you know, it's pretty impressive. And I think the, the actual audio hardware here is good enough that it's, you know, an, an, a realistic kind of sound. And, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. the software solution is, is, is pretty impressive. And there's also so a DTS Headphone X, which is also available as a free trial. So you can kind of pick between those three modes and you know, see which one you prefer, which is yeah, pretty neat. So I've got two questions. Um, I guess, first of all, if it's Bluetooth-based, you still need a Bluetooth dongle for uh, uh, those devices that are using Bluetooth, right? Because you usually get something like that bundled with... Uh... Yeah, that's right. So it doesn't use... Um, I guess, you know, there, there are two options, right? Like either you use the Xbox's proprietary wireless uh, without a dongle, and then you just have that kind of direct connection. And then for the Bluetooth, you know, you kind mm. of rely on the device that you're connecting to having Bluetooth. And obviously, right. you know, there's no dongle here. So if your PC doesn't have it, then you need to go out and buy an Xbox wireless adapter, which is about 20 pounds. And that'll let you connect Xbox controllers wirelessly. And also this headset and any other headset that uses the, the same kind of dongle-less proprietary right, wireless connection. And uh, my stupid question is, can you use it on PlayStation 5 and Series X simultaneously? Oh my God, I haven't tried that. Ooh, I need <laughs> to. It is probably doable. I mean, it, it wouldn't know, right? It yeah. would just be like, ah, oh, a Bluetooth thing. I will give you all of my audio. Um, so <laughs> that that is very fun. Maybe we should do that as a, as a special behind the scenes kind of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> experiment but yeah in theory it I should just, work it like just anything be else. like uh, you know in 60s star trek where kirk is using logic to befuddle a computer to make it explode <laughs> that's that's kind of what i expect to see happen there. yeah exactly but if not why not uh, um I, I just want to actually move on to what while we're talking about uh, peripherals talk about hmm. um, how we're actually doing some of our streaming here so um 
the folks at El Gato actually sent us quite a lot of kit to be able to to make DF Direct Weekly happen. So uh, I'm going to cut here to my setup, which is kind of a bit weird, but um, I'm using the Elgato ring light, which is um, basically a solution where you stick your camera in the middle and you have like a fully adjustable light that beams onto you. It's kind yeah. of used a lot by um, beauty vloggers, but it seems to be gaining a lot of traction with gaming too. Mm. I'm actually finding it to be a really useful solution. I've got like a... <laughs> I've gone a bit nuclear in terms of the camera option there. I'm using a Panasonic GH4 DS, DSF, DLSR oh, nice. um, to, to kind of get uh, imagery through to my PC, which is which is then recording the stream and Audi edits it later on. But yeah, um, I was using the cam link as well. Mm -hmm. I wasn't using, actually, I didn't have much success with that, but John is using that just fine. But yeah, the whole idea is that uh, certainly when we move on to doing more Patreon content, we need to have an in situ filming setup mm. that we can just turn on and uh, just start mm -hmm. recording and get good results. And I'm actually really pleased with uh, with what we've got here. So um, yeah, something to bear in mind. Now you actually use a different setup, right, Will? Yeah, that's right. So this is something that I previously kind of had set up and then I kind of put away. And then last night I had to... Uh, quickly assemble and redo in a different location but i'm using the another elgato thing curiously enough this is the key light and it's um and so instead of the ring it's just like a massive square um, but it works on the same principle of um it's something that you can control with an app on your phone or on your computer you can kind of set the mm -hmm. intensity of the light um, like the brightness, and you can also change the color temperature as well, which is quite handy yeah. if you want to achieve. Yeah, a you can do that look. on the ring light as well. You've got yeah. a phone app that does it. I guess it's the same app. Yeah, it must be. Yeah, and um, yeah, it, it's good because you can kind of achieve a similar, you know, a, a similar look uh, on camera using traditional bulbs and traditional, you know, white boxes and all this other stuff, right? But yeah. the the beauty of this is that it's on a telescopic um, pole that mounts to your desk. And so it really doesn't yes. take up any space. You can just leave it there. And, you know, when it's not yeah. being used, you just turn it off and it's, you know, very uh, unobtrusive, I would say. But mm -hmm. then when you need it, you've got I, uh, a lot of light. Um, you know, I use it for product shots as well. Really convenient. I, uh, so. Using the same thing here essentially is rich and also not using the CamLink 4K because I was having, I think it's a little bit of that Ryzen board issue I'm getting right now with some USB disconnecting, uh. Uh, but I'll fix that sometime later in like April when they release new BIOS. Um, but for me, one thing to just, one thing I really liked about the ring light uh, since we got this set up is that it's one of the rare uh, clamps that attaches to a desk that actually ha is a thick enough clamp as in the, the distance between the bottom of it and the top that you screw, um, that it actually fits my desk, which is like a custom desk made from an old like barn door, which is really like, th it's like really thick. Oh wow! It's not like some sort of Ikea thing <laughs> or, you know, like a standard desk size. So I was really happy that it's one of the few things that actually can connect to my desk because all like the Hotas stuff I have doesn't connect to this desk. And so it, it's really nice to see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's amazing. They need to You're put that on the website, I reckon. You know, <laughs> it well, can attach to a barn door just desk. fine. <laughs> this is... <laughs> Behind the scenes Patreon exclusive Alex's <laughs> barn door desk. Yeah, I think we all want to see that, right? I'm I want to see that. Oh, I'm subscribing get straight some away. <laughs> Snaps that. Wow. <laughs> all right, welcome back to another retro corner. Uh, I'm not in the main video this week, but uh, I do have, of course, Audi Surly with me as always. 
How's it going, John? Uh, good. So we're, we're making our guest appearance today, which is great. Uh, but also, we have a special guest today for this Retro Corner to talk about something very special. So, uh, Alex and Neil, welcome to the show. Good evening. How y'all doing? Fantastic. So for Pretty people good. who don't know, uh, you are with Brave Wave. You're with Limited Run Games. But I think a lot of people know you for being one of the world's uh, ma- main experts on everything Resident Evil slash Biohazard. <laughs> you know this series extremely well. You know it so well, and you've spoken to so many people that you wrote a book on it. And that's kind of what we wanted to talk to you about today. Yeah, uh, the book comes out on the 22nd of March, so I can't wait to see what everybody has to say about it. I'm really excited about the the feedback. How long did it take you? Oh, uh, from the very beginning to the very end, probably just, I guess if you include the editing process, maybe about four years, which is three years longer than I thought it would take, so... (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'm well, I'm uh, very familiar with things taking longer than they should when <laughs> writing books. There's a, it sounds like there's a lot of info in there, though. I mean, how many people roughly did you speak to when writing this thing? I would say I spoke to, let's see, one, two, three, probably 10 people who were all um, very influential in the development of Resident Evil in some way, or were very familiar with the process in which the development of the the series took place. So the the book covers only the first 10 years of Resident Evil. And as we all probably know, there are 25 years worth of Resident Evil as of, uh, (laughs) as of March 22nd. So it's, I guess it's less than half of, of the series history, but I do try to go as in depth as possible with, uh, the series development but yeah man i mean so so this, the reason this is so interesting to like me and i think a lot of others is that we're, we're always trying to look into game history that's really important to to myself it's important to audi uh and you had that rare opportunity to actually go back and discuss this stuff with those original creators and of course with that it brings new information and sort of expanded information on things that may not have been fully out there or hadn't been discussed in great detail because you know back when they were first building these games the discussion especially for people in the west was pretty limited so i feel like there's there's a lot of new stuff in there that can really sort of shine a light on how the series came to be and evolved over the years i would hope so yeah and that's something that i definitely kept in mind when writing this book Um, as I mentioned earlier, this book took about four years to create from beginning to end. I would say a little over half of that was spent actually writing the final draft of the book. And I was very cognizant about making sure that the information was a mixture of new, uh, new stuff, a little bit of well-known stuff, uh, but told in a more interesting way or contextualizing a lot of things that we may have known or assumed uh, through the through the direct anecdotes from the creators. So I, I try to tell a story of how you build such an endearing and enduring uh, video game IP. So I really hope that uh, it, it meets people's expectations in that regard. Um, it's not it's not a book that's purely like dropping one fact after another, like a Wikipedia article, for example. It's a little 
I've tried to make it more nuanced than that. Like I've tried to bring sure. a, a bit of a personal touch to it. Um, I've tried to keep keep the story flowing. So, you know, it goes from one one chapter to the next and there's a lot of context that connects them all together. So I really hope it uh, it works out the way it does in my head. So is there anything specific or any any special story or moment throughout those 10 years that that really just sticks out in your head that you that you're still thinking about after writing about it? Yeah, all the time. Um, I think the I mean, all the individual anecdote stories, drama, even you can say, I mean, they're all interesting to me, uh, but it's really interesting after I you know, knowing that after I completed writing the book, I thought, you know, a lot of the things that happened, you know, when, when Resident Evil 4 came out, a lot of that was set in motion so much earlier and it changed so much because of all these things that were happening in the game industry at large. And Resident Evil 4, for example, that came out in 2005 and that's the last major game I talk about in the book. Uh, but like that was set in motion immediately after Resident Evil 2 came out, right? And, you know, I think in our heads, we see there's a seven-year gap between the two games, but as you read all the chapters about all the games that, you know, released between Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 4, I'm hoping that people kind of see the connection and after they're done reading the Resident Evil 4 chapter, they remember about the stuff that they read earlier and maybe they draw a connection and they come away thinking, oh, wow, you know, it must have been really tougher for Capcom to make Resident Evil 4, given how it, how, how it changed so often. And, you know, the the playing field seemed to yeah. shift, you know, from year to year. Well, so, And that, that's kind of the thing is because I think a lot of people consider Resident Evil 4 one of the best games ever, including one of the best games in the Resident Evil series. Uh, but usually games that go through such a tumultuous development don't always turn out that great. So it's kind of an insane story to me to, to see how everything they went through, they still ended up producing a world-class game like that. So it's very good stuff. So what was it that made you decide to write the book? Like what was the moment where you realized that there is a story here that you want to tell? Yeah, uh, it was at GDC in 2017 and Resident Evil 7 had just come out and... um. That game was, in my opinion, amazing. And even though it took a lot of risks uh, with the first-person viewpoint, the the new protagonist and the, the the kind of the callback to the old style of Resident Evil gameplay, I thought it was a very successful game, very appealing, very well-made. And the GDC talk was by the director and the producer of that game. And I thought it was extremely fascinating to, to hear about... Uh, a lot of the different techniques that they use for the new RE engine at the time, a lot of the things that they had to think about after Resident Evil 6 came out and in, in, in determining where the series would go next. And that was an interesting talk. And I even had a chance to chat with them after the GDC talk with a director uh, who only speaks Japanese. And for those who don't know, I live in Japan and I do speak Japanese as well. And I realized when I was having that conversation that, you know, there are a lot of Resident Evil fans out there in the West who don't get to have these up close and personal conversations on a variety of topics. Um, 
in, in, in their native language. A lot of the information that eventually makes its way to the Western media is often interpreted or translated by, uh, you know, very well qualified people, but may, they may not be Resident Evil fans who, who really know every little nook and cranny, like, like, um, well, I don't want to say like I do, but I, I would say I'm very, uh, knowledgeable about the series in general. And I felt like mm -hmm. this would have been the opportunity to use my, my language skill and my connections working in the game industry to talk to these people at a level beyond the typical PR interview mm -hmm. and, and kind of see if I could take my knowledge of, you know, knowing Japanese, living in Japan and working in the game industry myself to see if I can add new context to a lot of, a lot of these stories. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting content in there, I think. Uh, so the other reason I chose to write a book instead of doing anything else is because that's li literally the only thing I can do. I'm not, I'm not like John who can, you know, make a video every week, right? <laughs> it's just, or like mm -hmm. do a podcast or, or something like that. Like writing was what I originally did even before I got into the game industry. Uh, some people might remember uh, from the early 2000s, a lot of the, the guidebooks that I wrote for, for the Resident Evil series on the internet. Of course. And so I do. That's where your, uh, your nickname came from, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The username. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, it was kind of like going back to my roots in a lot of ways. Like I still enjoy writing whenever I have time. So it, it was the, the best way for me to approach a project like this. I mean, in an ideal world, I could have, I could have made a documentary maybe like a, like a two hour documentary about the making of Resident oh, Evil, man. but you know, obviously awesome. I don't have the resources to make something like that happen just yet. Um, but maybe someday. Well, Alex, I think that's probably going to do it for now, though. Uh, I appreciate you coming out here. What is the name of your book? When is it available? Uh, and how can people get it? Yeah, so the book is called Itchy, Tasty, An Unofficial History of Resident Evil. The If you back the book on Unbound, uh, the, the crowdfunding publisher's website, you will get your ebook on March 22nd, which is the 25th anniversary of Resident Evil. And the physical book, we finished manufacturing it. I finished signing like a thousand copies. And I think Oof. those are all going to start going out at the end of the month uh, for, for most people. And the general release will be on April 15th for both the ebook and the, the physical version uh, for, for those who weren't able to, uh, to back the, the book on Unbound. So I think there's only one way to end this interview, though, John. What's that? Hashtag Dino Crisis sucks. Oh, yes, I didn't say. <laughs> Dino All Crisis right. sucks. <laughs> Back to you, Rich. Uh, <laughs> I just want to move on quickly to some content discussion. I think you've discussed already a bit about Avengers on PlayStation Five. This was one I really wanted to cover because I looked at the prior versions of the game, but. Hats off to a great video there, Alex. I've just been snowed under with various stuff. Now, you had the opportunity, which I think is, uh, which I'm super envious about. Um, we had a lot of questions about the game, specifically stuff like, uh, again, temporal upscaling, um, dynamic resolution. And rather than just do an email Q&A, you actually spoke to the developer, uh, Nixis, I think, uh, for this one. 
And again, I think we've said this in the past, but Nix is a kind of one of the unsung heroes, I think, of the development community. Avengers Port is excellent. Why don't you tell us a bit more about the production of this video, Alex? Yeah, sure. So I guess uh, getting the PlayStation code a bit beforehand um, and also just kind of going through it all. One thing that I was really nervous about, about reporting on it, was actually the resolution because we, you know, we talked about it or you guys talked about it um, in the DF Weekly last week about kind of the importance of resolution and reporting on it and not overemphasizing it uh, when it need not be when we're in this post-resolution era. Also, you want to be accurate. Um, so a part of that, I did play the game. I was getting resolution counts, but I just wanted to make sure not, I was not biasing essentially myself by not playing through the entire game. Uh, because there's not enough time uh, to essentially play through an entire game multiple times through all the different versions. Uh, so I sat down and talked with them and we did talk a bit about how their resolution scaling works and how actually how often it will scale, which was a really interesting part of that conversation too, uh, because I was showing some really nice data about how that, how that occurs. So I got a really good sense, uh, even while I played for about the first three hours in both modes on the PlayStation 4 Pro, PlayStation 5, and it both its modes, so it's like a total of nine hours of play I had. Um, but I got a really good sense of how it would scale over the entire campaign through talking with the developers, along with some other behind the scenes um, kind of information about how they have been porting this engine, this Crystal Dynamics, I forget the name of the engine off the top of my head, Foundation. Foundation. Uh, to the PlayStation 5, which is, seems like it is a Nixie's uh, development effort. Uh, from a number of their engineers there. And as a part of this was rewriting all the loading code to be more parallelized and also take advantage of the latest APIs uh, from the console space. Uh, so that would be direct storage, mm. I'm pretty sure, as well as the unnamed uh, PlayStation development environment for their SSD. And it bears out extremely in the results where you're getting greater than 15 times loading speedups you just, you know, you go into the game, you click the campaign, you blink, and, it, and you're already in the campaign. It's really awesome. And, you know, I just think this is something we'll be seeing more and more over time as developers come to grips with upgrading their engines to take advantage of the software solutions uh, and hardware solutions by next gen. Um, to kind of talk about another aspect of that is we did not get to cover the Xbox version because uh, essentially we only had uh, pre-release access to the PlayStation version, uh, which also works differently due to the way there's, um, I forget that, uh, delivery, smart delivery on Xbox. Uh, so it'll be, so it'd be a little different anyway, yeah. maybe. Um, but as part of that, we didn't touch the Xbox version. There will be differences in resolution in the end uh, as a result. PlayStation 5 is using a PlayStation 4 Pro setup with uh, having dynamic resolution in a reconstruction uh, done by checkerboarding uh, in its 60 FPS mode, highest performance as it's called, while the Xbox Series X will be doing normal, uh, kind of normal temporal anti-aliasing upscale uh, from a non-reconstructed resolution in the end. And I did ask a little bit about that. Uh, to say it simply, there isn't a, like a dramatic uh, performance reason why that is the case. It's more of a you know, just like differences between the consoles made that the setup that they wanted to choose for the Xbox. And it's, um, I think it'll be really interesting when I do take a look. I think that's the next kind of slated work for me is to go into those Xbox versions uh, and talk about how they perform and look. And I think we may end up seeing some differences there between the PlayStation 5 
and Xbox Series X in terms of image quality, that could be interesting to talk about. Uh, but it's not actually like the reason for that isn't some sort of dramatic performance reason, just to, just to say that. But I think uh, one thing that you told me, which I found fascinating, is that um, when we, this is something we talked about last week, which is that when we choose samples for pixel counting, it's kind of arbitrary. It's based on whether we can find an edge or not, as opposed to what typical resolution might be. Mm. And they, didn't mm -hmm. they actually show you like a graph of the fluctuation yeah. in resolution throughout the campaign? Yeah, that's essentially how I got the information. Um, I obviously can't re reproduce it for you yeah. on screen because that's not right. Um, but that's something a lot of developers actually do when they have a, a QA uh, called a resolution graph. And it does plot the entire dynamic resolution setup through the entire campaign as part of a graph. Wow. And I've seen this multiple from other, other games before uh, uh, through presentations and stuff like that. But I got to see it this time for PlayStation 5. and. It basically lines up with exactly what I said in the video. And it also aligns up with my subjective experience where you're going to be playing the game. It's going to be primarily 4K reconstructed when you're just kind of, you know, walking around the environment, exploring the Avengers stuff. Uh, but combat will see scaling. And it can be a little bit more obvious because it is checkerboard scaling. It's a little different. So, so there's some, like some, some aspects of the image are scaling differently than you might be used to. So it can be a little bit more obvious, but in the end, I just want to say that performance to me is so much more important than image quality when we're in these higher echelons of image quality, uh, you know, regarding reconstruction. So I think they made the completely the correct choice there on PlayStation 5 uh, right now. And you've got a 30 FPS native resolution mode yeah. if you want it. And it did look like there were some interesting additions there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's kind of, I mean, I was touting them in the video, but it's a little shame that we didn't get to cover the PC version as much uh, at launch. It was at this mm. like really awkward time when it was like Flight Simulator, Horizon Zero Dawn, all these other things were going on. Uh, mm -hmm. So I didn't get to cover it. But it's gotten, just to talk about the PC version really quickly, it has like dynamic resolution DLSS. And it's one of the only games that I know that has it. And that's really, oh, really cool. Because um, it's kind of like the dream scenario for DLSS where you don't have to really choose uh, the bottom resolution because they all look kind of good anyways at least at the 4k output especially uh, and you just let the, the it kind of free float and you get that benefit of the reconstruction all the time i really like that uh, but all these other advances that the playstation 5 version has in its highest quality mode that's all pc stuff kind of being brought onto the playstation 5. good stuff it's not on the docket but i'm going to talk about it anyway yeah <laughs> which, <laughs> which is um uh, something which I guess you're going to be taking point on, Will, which is the Rocket Lake CPU mm -hmm. testing. Ah. And it's a really bizarre situation because, um, yeah. well, the i7 is out there. People have tested it. People have reviewed it. Rocket Lake is a kind of known quantity outside of BIOS variations. And we have actually received uh, the Core i5 and the Core i9, I think. Yeah, I haven't yeah. got the i7. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, kind of a weird situation where we've got this review being lined up and it's we just don't really know if there's any mysteries left. What do you make of it, Will? Yeah, it is unusual. The fact that um, <laughs> we've been sampled with the i9 and the i5 perhaps suggests that they kind of understand that the i7 is already out of the bag and there's maybe not so much interesting. Well, the i7, like the i9, is a an octo-core part. Yeah, true. There's been talk about artificial yeah. segmentation on the memory controller, stuff like that. Uh. I guess we'll find that out sooner rather than later. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
difficult one for Intel, this, because the Ryzen 5000 series is actually really, really good. Yep. Uh, the gaming advantage yep. of Comet Lake has been uh, matched, for the most part, surpassed in some places. Yeah. Um, they have core scalability, which Rocket Lake doesn't have. Yep. Uh, that tops out at yeah. 8 cores, 16 threads. And I guess another question is the fact that it's going to be on Z590, Z490, which is a dead-end platform. You won't be able Completely. to upgrade your CPU beyond that. So the top end in terms of core count will be the 10900K, 10850K, etc. Yeah. So it is. it really does strike me. And I mean, I haven't actually experienced Rocket Lake at all, so I can't break NDA here, but it really does seem... <laughs> Like we're in a sort of transitionary period with Intel, almost like a holding pattern. Yeah, it uh, just thinking about the future with I believe it's called Alder Lake. Yeah, uh, please correct me. Okay, good. I, there's so many lakes. Yeah, got a lot of lakes in Intel. I don't know why. A lot of lakes. I think they're all Northern California lakes, if I recall, something like that. Um, uh, but the uh, essentially there, where you're going to have that, I think it's going to have PCIe Gen Five, the new. Uh, the new um, the new motherboard chipsets and everything like that, and it's also, you know, going to be advancing the the architecture further along than this. This does feel a bit transitory, a bit of a thing that was on the roadmap for a while. This is from my outside perspective, not talking about the NDAs or anything about performance, but from my outside perspective, it just seems like this is another bump in the road on Intel's long, long journey of getting to a new uh, process. Uh, so. That's kind of what it, it has been me. a long journey for sure. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Will actually sent you the Ryzen 5950X. Have you installed uh, that yet? No, because uh, I've been after <laughs> this may oh, come. Yeah, yeah your exploding power. My supply. exploding power supply. I've been kind of uh, don't want to throw in the new Ryzen uh, into the 3900X PC right now uh, because I am waiting on a power supply replacement, which unfortunately has been back ordered. It's going to be coming a little bit later than I wanted. But after that arrives, I do want to plug that in, take advantage of it for my process and creation work for DF. Mm. And I honestly, you know, I, maybe it's because it's become slightly a bit of tradition. Maybe I should just do a fun little video about the upgrade uh, because 3900X to the new Ryzen. It's not a huge update uh, necessarily in all aspects, but it's a fun one to just go over the games I like to play maybe and talk about what it does, you know? Yeah, yeah I think, you know, basically uh, Flight Simulator and uh, Crisis Remastered, those two titles that you covered, which Ryzen 3000 just wasn't up to snuff compared to um, uh, Intel. So yeah, I'd be interested to see that. But, you know, I have seen Will's benchmark data. This is a really a big issue of frustration for me is that Ryzen 5000 dropped with the next-gen consoles. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we didn't have the bandwidth to cover. We did, Will did excellent CPU reviews for uh, Eurogamer where we've got all of that data and some of it sneaked into the 6700 XT review. And I was actually really, really impressed, particularly uh, that perennial favorite, Novigrad City, The Witcher 3. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was like, significantly faster than the 10900K. Even Crisis 3, it was up there. And that was really, really impressive stuff. So yeah, Rocket Lake will be interested to see whether they can actually uh, uh, regain the gaming crown there because uh, Ryzen 5000, I was scanning over the benchmarks 
uh, visualizing them with our performance tools uh, during 6700 XT really impressed. Well, we actually put up uh, a post asking for questions on Patreon itself this week, which I think is the way forward. Huge amount of quality questions. Hmm. Uh, can't get through them all, but uh, some of them are so good, maybe we'll bank them for next week. But anyway, let's start with uh, Anton. <laughs> These surnames are killing me. <laughs> Kirilenko, Anton Kirilenko. Apologies, Anton. Maybe you can shed some light onto the topic why everything is sold out for months now. In brackets, new GPUs, older GPUs, new consoles. Well, it's this perennial issue. Again, it's the perfect storm, really, where there seems to be a shortage in the whole semiconductor business. Yep. Supply chains seem to be completely. Uh, uh, balked. <laughs> yep. And I guess when there's this huge pent up demand, older hardware is going to go up in price too. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed on the NVIDIA video we did on the sponsored side, people were angry that we were talking about GPUs that you can't buy. And I guess on the one hand, that's entirely understandable. But on the other hand, you know, if we're not going to do stuff on stuff that's uh, hard to come by, then does that mean we stop doing PlayStation 5 videos? Obviously not. Anyway, um, Will, what do you reckon about this shortage? I mean, I think you've pretty much hit the nail on the head is that, you know, this is kind of a semiconductor kind of at the very basic level kind of problem. Um, you know, there's simply not enough supply of, of the most critical components mm-hmm. of, of all of these systems going out. And you know, when there's an issue with PS5, people will be turning to a Series X. And then when there's a problem with Series X, they'll be turning to, you know, a, a new PC GPU. And when there's not a new PC GPU, then they're going to have to go and pick up something older, right? So mm. all of these things kind of feed into each other. Um, you know, that if there's a shortage in any one area, naturally, the demand will kind of, mm. you know, spread to the entire sector. And unfortunately, at the moment, you know, with coronavirus, with, um, I think I saw some news that there was incredible delays just getting container ships into the United States. And certainly in the UK, because of Brexit, there's issues there. So, you know, it's all kind of a perfect storm of uh, availability issues. And to kind of take advantage of of this uh, situation, we've seen a cottage industry of uh, developers writing bots for either uh, accessing and, and displaying stock levels, kind of alerting people when stock is available so they can go and buy it. But equally, um, people have been writing programs to go and uh, find stock and then buy it immediately so <sighs> other people can't do it so that they can resell it later. And we had that, had that crazy situation where before Ryzen, sorry, before uh, GeForce 30 series came out, the prices on 20 series cards were collapsing. Yep. <laughs> I know that, that very well. That's hard to think about, yeah. Because I, I went <laughs> yeah. to sell my uh, RTX 2080 that I bought as something that we we saw on Deals Foundry, you know, a couple of years before, and I got it at a reasonable price. And then I went to sell my 2080 because I knew that 30 series was coming at some point. It would probably be pretty good. And I think, I don't know, I think I got around 500 pounds for it, something like that. And I was like, oh, wow, I can't believe people are willing to spend so much on an old GPU. I'm so glad I sold it. And then about now, I think the same card is probably going for almost double that. So it's just an absolutely crazy situation that, you know, it is even these older cards are now, you know, almost impossible to find even on the used market for a reasonable price. Mm. One thing I think uh, 
one thing I just want to mention is there's also not a large plurality of chip makers. Mm. Yeah. Uh, like there used to be uh, as much so at these really small node sizes. Uh, you know, in the middle 90s or the early 2000s, a lot of people could produce those uh, kind of small nanometer nodes that, were, that, that we were seeing back then. But now very specialized, huge amount of investment, and they have orders from tons of industries, not just uh, the uh, consumer computing industry, like I would call consoles and uh, PC components, but you know, large industrial uh, concerns there too, with a lot of, there's a lot of politicking involved with that, with the way governments want to um, kind of prioritize certain industries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of like, how do you call them? When when governments give money to an industry or- Incentives? Call them, incentives, is the German word, I'm forgetting what you call them, but it's like when, uh, there's a certain amount of incentive, I guess, from governments to produce for different sectors. And obviously in this extremely trying time, uh, the kind of entertainment computing industry is not going to be always given the highest rung for these kind of things. So it's mm. just an incredibly perfect storm. And we're going to be seeing this for longer than I would like, obviously. But in the- Yeah, the mining situation yeah. isn't great. But again, on the flip side, I'm... Again, this might be just because I'm out of the loop, but I'm not seeing shortages on mobile phones. Yeah, right. You know, the Galaxy um, S21 seems to be fairly easy to buy. I can order an iPhone and it will come up in the next you know, day or so. Mm. Um, so I'm just wondering whether it is, uh, if, if it is a whole supply chain thing or whether it is simply uh, the shortages are affecting some industries more than others. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess I mean, it's in, in terms of mobile phones, uh, you know, Apple is kind of, you know, responsible or at least has their own design. So <laughs> yeah, they yeah. might have a little bit more control over their own supply line. They're still coming from TSMC. Yeah, I'm yeah pretty that's sure. one thing. True, yeah. yeah. Well, let's move on. Uh, question here from, well, my favorite name, Farf underscore GI. <laughs> nice, yep. Uh, I think it could be Elon Musk's next yeah. child. I mean, <laughs> anyway, um, the question. Hey, Digital Foundry team, my question is regarding HDR content, especially with auto HDR being a thing on PC now. It seems you've mostly stopped producing HDR videos. Is there a reason why? And would you be willing to make more HDR-focused videos in the future? I don't think HDR gets enough love. It's a performance-free way to drastically improve image quality and the beauty of the presentation. I don't think we have any issue with the last Mm -hmm. part of that. Um, I think the reason why we're not so keen on doing HDR videos these days, it's another perfect storm of potential so issues. Many, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you did one of the last yeah. HDR videos, which was, again, uh, almost like an auto HDR style. Yeah, thing that, PC, that, Alex. so for that, um, the production side of things is not really easy always, at least from my perspective. It was my first HDR video at a time when HDR, when initial, I think, Digital Foundry videos started doing HDR a little bit back ago uh, around the PlayStation 4 Pro's advent, I I feel like it was, Um, that Mm. the software side of things and the standardization side of things, whether it means editing Premiere or how you uh, kind of capture footage, was a little different than it is now because Premiere's updated quite a bit. And the way you capture on PCs always going to be a little bit different than it is on console. And there's so many things that were involved with that production of that video that were just not easy as a result of it being HDR. If you watch the video in 
uh, HDR, you'll see that a lot of the labels are actually still SDR. I just couldn't, I still couldn't figure it out. <laughs> like the, the color space issue, yep. it's like there's like nothing out there on the web about it either. Uh, you would really need to have a lot of trading, I feel like, to get that kind of up to the great standard of consistency. Well, that that could be. Uh, I don't know how consistent my videos are, but either way, like up to that, uh, up to that standard <laughs> that I would actually like. And that was not an easy video to make as a result. I ended up doing HEVC recordings, as I mentioned there, instead of using our usual capture card setup uh, because it was easier for 8K. Uh, I think I was also doing at the time too. Uh, like a week later, there were such so many things that did not make it easy. And another problem is that when we put that out there, we're showing the game in its raw HDR format, and that that then YouTube crunches down into a auto tone mapped SDR, and it looks invariably different than the way the game is actually tone mapped in SDR. Uh, so all the people out there watching this on SDR screens are like. This game looks weirdly saturated. What's going on? Like this doesn't, why do people like HDR? This looks like mm. crap. Uh, and I don't like that at all. I don't like yeah. that to happen, you know? Yeah, I, I agree entirely. So back in the day when PS4 Pro and Series, no, One X actually, Xbox That's One X came yeah. out, um, a really talented guy called uh, Matthew Falconer came forward and said, hey, I can help you to produce HDR videos. And we effectively hacked together an HDR workflow, which involved editing in SDR in Premiere using HDR assets. And then we would do the whole thing. We would, um, Matt provided um, uh, LUTs, lookup tables, that would convert our SDR assets into HDR, map them into the HDR space. So stuff like the frame rate graphs and whatnot would actually look reasonable. Mm. It actually looked normal. And um, happy days, this, this, uh, all worked perfectly fine. <laughs> and um, a number of things have happened since then. First of all, um, you're quite right, Alex. Premiere has changed now to the point where when we import an HDR asset, we can't have it treated as an SDR asset anymore. Because what we would do before was we would do the whole thing as SDR, export it, encode it, and then we had a tool that would patch the HEV file, HEVC file with metadata, which said, hey, this is actually HDR and everything would work. So yeah, Premiere, that doesn't work anymore. It, it seems to interpret uh, HDR footage where we don't want it to. Um, and uh, the lookup tables that uh, Matt provided don't work anymore. Uh, hence the labels looking weird. Um, and then we have the whole issue with YouTube processing where we produced a bunch of HDR videos uh, which were locked at 720p30 in HDR for like a week before they actually resolved to 4K60. Wow. So, you know, all of that effort put into an HDR video and we couldn't do anything with it because the YouTube backend just, you know, farted and died <laughs> and just really let us down. And we couldn't get that content out there. So that was one reason why we stopped doing it. And again, you're quite right um, that the YouTube Tone Mapper, which takes HDR content and presents it in a way which looks okay on an SDR screen, it's not good. It's weirdly oversaturated. And it's kind of strange that when I input an HDR signal into an Ava Media capture card, it actually does a far better tone mapping job <laughs> than YouTube does. 
Um, so YouTube really needs to sort out its HDR stuff. And um, here's the other thing. You're quite right about Premiere. Uh, there's no information on how to edit in HDR. And um, more to the point, we pay a huge amount in subscriptions to Adobe and we don't have any kind of point of contact at Adobe to say, hey, um, got some questions about HDR. Can you help us? Um, I was, was looking into this recently because I've got a number of uh, Premiere issues that I'd like to get resolved, um, particularly when it deals with AVI files. Um, huge problem we have. We've got no one to, we've got nobody to speak to at Adobe, even though we're paying them thousands of pounds across our company uh, over the year. Insane, but that's why we can't do it. And it's really frustrating. Um, I think we would like to do it. YouTube has to sort itself out. Premiere has to sort itself out, Adobe. <laughs> and uh, we'll go from there. Um, next question, Sam Harper. Any idea yet how you are going to be able to measure clarity quantifiably? As we know, raw resolution numbers count for very little now. So this is actually a follow-on from a discussion that we had last week about, hey, maybe we shouldn't be looking at pixel counts, maybe we should be looking to quantify the quality of the actual image that we're looking at. Um, I have actually done some work on this in the past where what I did was basically, if you take a video codec and set it to encode at a constant quality level, the more dense an image is, the more visual detail there is, the higher the bit rate, the higher the file size of the output video. So something that I did experiment with was basically to map bitrate on like-for-like -like content. And what I did find was that, and um, I did it, I think, on a Wolfenstein, uh, the new Colossus, uh, which is a um, clearer game on uh, Xbox One X versus PS4 Pro. It's like 2160p versus 1440p, if you lock the resolutions. And... Um, yeah, so you would actually see scaling of bitrate on like-for-like -like content. So you could possibly interpret more bits being required to reconstruct the image and map it to a level of detail. Um, a very early work and throws up a lot of um, question marks. For example, if we have film grain turned on, <laughs> the level of bitrate required is skewed and kind of eclipses the differentials. Secondly, um, yeah, it's, it's just, well, there's just so many different things here. Uh, you kind of need a ground truth image, I think, which would be in an ideal world, the PC version at 4K, possibly. Mm -hmm. But even then, you've got situations in game where even when you're capturing like-for-like -like content, there can be dynamic elements on screen. So it's not actually like-for-like. -like. You know, volumetrics can be ran randomized, for example. Uh, secondly, um, a title, I think uh, many titles now are actually running their post-processing at native resolution while the game is running dynamic. Uh, that will skew the results. But then again, maybe not because the, it's all about perceived resolution. Um, I'm going to throw it out there. A lot of really talented people listen and watch Digital Foundry. If you've got any sort of hints about this, any kind of ideas, any proof of concepts, get in touch with us. Fascinated to see. I would like 
I would also like to see that too. I think we, maybe this, I don't know if there's a conflict of interest here, but you know, NVIDIA actually as a part of uh, their DLSS research and Facebook Reality Labs too, maybe we should honestly get in touch with them to talk about how they are weighting their neural networks to understand like what is a more perfect image or what is a more close to ground truth image. Maybe we can learn a little bit from that too. Maybe there is actually like a maths way to solve this issue of describing a game as being better looking than another in terms of image quality. Uh, but at the, you, I think at the end of the day, we're going to have that problem is that we need consistent ground truths like you were talking about there, Rich. And I don't know in terms of like if we can even produce that because not every version's going to, not every game has a PC version that launches day and date. Uh, not every content recording is going to be the exact same as other content recordings. It's not like this, we can't create a lab uh, set up uh, with a lot of reproducibility always to make this possible. In the end, I think for the short term until we maybe get some really great input from the audience or from other sources, we're going to have to rely on the subjective component, which is, uh, you know, people come to Digital Foundry, I hope, not just for the graphs, but also to hear a little bit what we have to say as an editorializing on top of these graphs and information. Uh, so I think in the meantime, that's the way it's going to have to be, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, next question, container seven, a really easy one to answer this one. When analyzing game footage, how does DF ensure that any frame cadence issues, micro stuttering, et cetera, are not being introduced by the capture equipment itself? Um, really easy to answer that because um, first of all, our eyes <laughs> tell us if, if, if things are looking a bit weird. Sure. Secondly, you can uh, test this on a game that has perfect frame pacing at 30 frames per second. So, for example, um, off the top of my head, example here, let's say Forza Horizon 4. That's a good um, one. 4K 30, Xbox One X. It's pretty consistent. Um, if the capture issue, if the capture equipment was a problem, you would see the frame cadence issues being introduced in the capture. You would see the problems there. You don't. Uh, secondly, the capture software tells you about dropped frames, mm -hmm. which, are, which are frames that were fed from the capture card but weren't encoded, and inserted frames, which is where the software was expecting a frame that didn't arrive, so it basically replicated the last one. If you've got no inserted frames and no dropped frames, you've got a clean capture. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, you can use the 30 frames per second test on a game that does have totally even frame pacing to ensure that your capture is fine. I don't think there's anything more I guess, to say to that, Alex. I guess there is the, the one aspect that you, you and I, I know that everyone has struggled with this at DF at some point is console capture and the output due to game content or due to the way the system is feeding the image into the capture card can give us false positives or uh, we need to do sometimes a little bit of manual filtering like regarding until we just recently found it out like PlayStation content was always a little hard with tearing at 60 FPS uh, for us due to the, the way yeah. uh, kind of it was sent out in a dithered pattern from PlayStation consoles. We figured out a way around that, which is excellent. Um, yeah. But that was like one other instance that I thought like, oh, you know, our tools can be telling us that this is 60, but you scroll through the footage and you see a couple tears and you're like, oh no, you know? Yeah, that isn't actually down to the capture no. card though. It's down to the signal that was coming from the PS5. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, very uh, slight dither pattern. Um, but again, we've managed to filter that out now. So that makes analysis a lot easier. 
but yeah, that that was actually you've got a good point there. That was actually something that was causing us issues, and we did need to manually correct in some cases there. Um, next question here, I think it's a really good one. Do you? And it's from uh, Jason. Juan Osta, again, apologies cool, if I've hey. got your name mispronounced there. Do you think that Xbox Series S would have been better marketed as a 1080p machine rather than 1440p? It looks like every Series S update seems to target 1080p60. Also, with up to 120 frames per second advertised, a 1080p resolution would better favor that frame rate. Yes. Alex. Everything about that person just said is completely <laughs> true. Uh, we were, even when they were... Well, I, from my outside perspective, looking at the differentials just on the hardware side, it doesn't look like it could be a 1440p machine uh, based upon what we see on PC GPUs. So it just always felt like out of reach. And maybe it had to do a little bit less so with advertising, wanting to throw out the biggest numbers. But I always wonder a little bit if it had to do with how they were internally targeting their games at that point in time. Uh, like, because and and, they were thinking, mm. we're going to have a longer cross-gen. We're going to be taking Xbox One versions and Xbox One X versions and scaling them up to the next-gen consoles. In that case, actually, if you were to take a look at base Xbox One games scaling to Xbox Series S, 1440p actually doesn't sound that kind of uh, off the charts. Uh, but if you're looking at games that are designed around next-gen Xbox Series X, PlayStation 5, and targeting you know, frame rates there at a higher resolution, then it just doesn't make any sense anymore. And 1080p is definitely where this console is going to be at. And at 120 FPS, I don't even know if it'll be 1080p, honestly. But uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've seen that. Yeah. Do you have any input on that, um, Will? Um, not particularly. Um, I mean, I guess... Um, it's not really your bag, is it? Do you own an Xbox Series S? I, I do not own a Series S. I haven't had a chance even to see one in the flesh. But <laughs> I mean, we have seen what... Uh, I think it was the the tourist was was running uh, at 4K 120. Was that correct? E, um, or 4K 60? It does maybe? that on Series X. Yeah, it does that on Series X, but it does have 4K 60, I believe. Yeah, that, yeah that, that's X. what I was thinking about. So yeah, there are these a, odd games that do go kind of over the advertised spec that are you know because yeah. they're very efficient in in some way. Um, yeah. I, I generally uh, basically agree mm -hmm. with what you said, Alex, and indeed with the questioner, which is um, that it does seem to have settled at 1080p. That seems to be what developers are targeting. And that's absolutely fine. I mean, when way back when, when I did the video, which kind of projected what a four teraflop um, RDNA GPU could deliver, it was between 1080p and 1440p, which is kind of the way things have played out. But at the same time, there have been scenarios where even at 1080p, the Series S has underperformed. I guess I'm going to put this down to early development tools and also um, you know, the fact that possibly the Series S isn't the focus for a developer. Um, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see what happens there. Uh, I really hope to see more from the Series S because uh, the actual form factor of the machine, the price point, there's so much going for it. And I actually really, really like it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there have been some strange results there. Mm. Anyway, let's move on to the final question from uh, Volta Santos. And it's one for you, Alex. Uh, did, yeah. <laughs> did, did Alex's power supply say... Alfreda Sane <laughs> when it blew up. <laughs> uh, I don't know how much experience you have with Spear of Destiny or Wolfenstein 3D, but it was actually more like this sound. Ah! 
So yeah, um, I was loading up Mortal Shell, trying to help Tom with his video to get a, like a baseline understanding of the PC performance there. And uh, you know, he got like a nine or 10 year old PSU at this point, really great Corsair Gold 1050, I think it was. Uh, I liked it modular, but uh, just didn't want to play it. And unlock frame rate there in the menu, you have like Ampere, you have like Ryzen 3900X in this PC, whole bunch of peripherals on USB uh, due to, you know, this is my workstation and it just blew up. It just <laughs> made a popping noise, smelled really weird. I tried to boot the computer again because <laughs> I wasn't sure what the hell it was happening. Oh, no. uh, and then it just like fizzled and then it uh, made a really weird garbled noise and smoke came out of it. Oh my God. Uh, so yeah, uh, ter you know, I've had this happen at least two other times in my life with the PCs where PSU breaks. Uh, first time, uh, it took the whole system with it. Second time, took the whole system with it. I think PSUs these days are much better at not yep. doing that. Uh, they have like fail saves and switches and all these other things. Uh, so every single component is completely fine in this PC. Oh, well, that's really I good. actually want to see an Alex Patalia branded power supply. <laughs> if it's if it's in danger of you know blowing up, it will just go Alfredo. <laughs> <laughs> and then basically, uh, yeah. It could do, engage some kind of uh, sort of preventative measure from taking out your entire system. It could, could be like uh, the, the exact ending scene to Wolf 3D where this, the camera stops, looks directly at you at the PSU, and it says, AFA, off beta scene, and just explodes. <laughs> nice. Brilliant. Okay, well, look, I'm going to wrap this up there. Um, so thanks so much for joining me, Will, and I hope to see you again soon in the Digital Foundry Weekly mm -hmm. Direct. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and Alex, what can I say? It's a pleasure as always. Pleasure's all mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, if you enjoyed the content, please like, subscribe, share, ring the notification bell for instant, yes, instant notifications when Digital Foundry drops new content. DF Patreon, if you want to get involved with the show, if you want to talk about the topics that are going to be in the uh, weekly news, if you want to put some questions forward, if you want to talk to us on Discord, Awesome stuff is happening there. So please get involved there. Join our supporter program. It's awesome. And there's much more coming soon. But that's all from us for now. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of this mammoth transition. And just generally, thanks for watching and supporting Digital Foundry. Eva, Peter Zen.